It's Monday, June 4th, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to The Secrets, Series 4, Novels. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a New York Times bestselling novelist. In this series, I'm going to take you through some of the various concerns that pop up during a novel's creation. I'll be using some of my novels as an example, starting with Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron. The reasons for this particular choice should be obvious. First, the novel has sold over 800,000 copies in the United States and has been published in a lot of different languages. Listeners worldwide can follow along, and chances are that if you've only read one of my novels, Rogue Squadron is it. Second, I know what went on in the writing of the novel because I wrote it. Third, a lot of people would like to write novels in a franchise universe, and this brings with it certain challenges that I'll get to in addressing talking about that novel. If you haven't read the novel, be aware there are going to be spoilers in this series of podcasts. I won't be revealing everything about the novel, but just hitting the high points. Still, to discuss something concerning the way a character gets set up to die will, de facto, reveal that character dies. If you don't want secrets revealed, just collect up this podcast and the next several in the set and save them until you've read Rogue Squadron. There is one huge caveat about writing in a franchise universe. You can't do it unless you're invited to do so. The characters and settings are property that is owned by someone else, and the chances of your original novel being so good that the property owner decides it should be published are, well, zero. Moreover, it's highly unlikely that, as an unpublished novelist, you'll get an invitation to write in a franchise universe. I don't say this to break any hearts, it's just the realities of the game. Thinking you will be allowed to write in someone else's universe first thing is like going to Fenway Park and assuming the Red Sox are going to let you back clean up just because you want to. More importantly, I think it's a gross error for anyone starting out to write their first novel in a franchise universe. Aside from the fact that you don't own the property and can't do anything with it when you're finished, writing your first novel in a franchise universe is the equivalent of popping a TV dinner into the oven and thinking you're a chef. A franchise universe comes complete with characters and worlds, so you do no world building and no characterization you won't develop all the skills you need to have for a writing career because most of the tough work has already been done for you. It's better for you to do your own novel in your own universe, even if it doesn't sell. That's exactly what happened to me. My first novel didn't sell for 10 years, but the editors who looked at it gave me a lot of work, including Rogue Squadron. The intricacies of writing any novel, but especially a novel set in a franchise universe, really begin before you start writing. This is the phase that I call book work. It's doing research and jotting a lot of notes. Here are some examples from Rogue Squadron. In researching fighter pilots through reading biographies, watching documentaries, and uh, reading books on the subject of aces, I learned that aces tend to be smaller in stature, have light-colored eyes, and curiously enough, tend to father more girls than boys. More importantly, if a pilot survives his first five dogfights, he's statistically going to last for 15. 
Also, superior pilots have a lot of situational awareness. They can track more variables like the position of enemies in a dogfight, which means they have a greater chance of survival as well as killing enemies. This little bit of research led to two things in the books. First, my pilots tend to be smaller and have light eyes. Lucasfilm said Wedge Antilles had blue eyes, so I was set there. I gave Corrin Horn green eyes because I tend to do that with my heroes. It's also true that I have green eyes, but that just means I don't see green as terribly exotic since I see it in the mirror every single morning. Second and more important, the fact that pilots tend to die in their first five dogfights led to behavior that was common in World War II and in other conflicts. Seasoned veterans tend not to want to get to know the new guys since they figure they're going to die. They've already lost too many friends. In the novel, Wedge and Tycho, old friends who have flown together against Death Stars, don't address the new characters by their first names until after they survive five dogfights. Structurally, then, I organized the novel around five missions. Readers are told right off the bat that most pilots die in the first five, which builds tension. It also gave me five fights, so I could plan them to be different and escalate the action to make the book more exciting as we go along. The payoff, of course, is Wedge acknowledging these characters as friends at the end of the novel. Research found me another interesting thing to play with. Allied pilots who were shot down over France and succeeded in escaping with the help of French resistance were barred from combat missions once they returned to their squadron. The thought was that if they were shot down again and captured, they might be able to give the Germans valuable information. Chuck Yeager got shot down once and appealed all the way to General Eisenhower to be allowed to fly again. I decided to put a pilot, Tycho Selku, in a similar position, and then I made it more dangerous. He'd been captured and kept in a secret prison, Lusankia, by Yazani Eishard. Everyone else who had been there and released had been a sleeper agent who had done harm to the rebellion. Tycho still wanted to help the cause, but couldn't be trusted. He took a lot of risks throughout the books until he proved himself trustworthy in the eyes of the rebellion and could fly again. The reason I did this was because I wanted the readers to think the prejudgment of Tycho was grossly unfair. Once readers are presented with his background, having met him before they learn about it, they have to decide if they believe he's a threat or not. That simple decision, or even refusing to make a decision, engages them in thinking about Tycho. Once you have readers thinking about a character and projecting his past and future, you have them hooked. This project came with yet another curious aspect that really shaped the entire saga. I was offered four X-Wing novels. Up to this point, Star Wars novels had come in singles or trilogies. The weekend after I had been given the job, I attended CoastCon with my editor, Tom Dupree. There, Tom announced that I had been given four Star Wars novels. And this is also the convention where I introduced Tom to Aaron Alston, and Tom later tapped Aaron to pick up the X-Wing series while I worked on iJedi. Throughout the convention, people kept coming up to me and congratulating me on getting a trilogy, even though Tom had said it was four books. And people's math skills are really not that bad. They just hear what they want to hear. I realized very quickly that reader expectation was for three novels, so I plotted very carefully to make the series appear to be ending after book three. And then, in the last chapter of that novel, I opened the gateway to the novel The Back to War. The state of Star Wars novels to that point also dictated a couple of other things. First, Lucasfilm wanted me to create a racially and gender-diverse squadron. This meant alien and female pilots. No problem. 
Gavin Darklighter, who's a big underage kid, got added in because of all the similar stories of kids enlisting young for World War II. Gavin also gave me someone who was innocent and not so worldly, so I had a fresh pair of eyes. Making him a cousin of Biggs Darklighter, who had died in the first Death Star run, also brought history to the squadron, and more of those feelings of loss for Wedge and Tycho. Using Wedge to lead the squadron was a suggestion made by Sue Rustoni at Lucasfilm. Given the way I do research and my experience with the Battletech universe, I know I would have picked Wedge as my leader regardless. He's the perfect character to have in the series. He's a hero, he's been in the films, he's an ace, and he's Luke's best friend. He knows absolutely everyone, and so provides me access to the characters when I need them. This would be the higher level characters like Luke and Leah and Han. Wedge's inclusion and background as a smuggler also shaped another character, Corrin Horn. Wedge and Han Solo hail from Corellia, and both are smugglers. One could assume that everyone from Corellia is a smuggler, based on those data points, but that's rather silly. I wanted a Corellian because they are brash and good pilots, but I also wanted something different. I made Corrin a former Corellian security agent, Corsac for short. He was one of the guys, like his father and grandfather, who went after smugglers. This created immediate tension and, again, forced readers to consider whether or not they liked him, since he didn't have a high opinion of Han Solo. So, contrary to rumors on some websites, Corrin wasn't my version of Han, nor was he ever intended to be. And, though I, Jedi, is written first person from his point of view, and I appeared as Corrin on a trading card for the Cypher Star Wars game, Corrin was not me injecting myself into the series. Quite frankly, I'm not sure Corrin's the kind of person I'd want to hang with, uh, though the idea of him having my back in a fight is actually kind of comforting. Making Corrin into a Corsac agent did present a problem. I couldn't have him meet Han Solo because he'd not react to him well. That would have alienated readers killing the series. This is why the two of them don't meet until Corrin has fully joined the Rebellion and had a chance to see how folks can change. And change, after all, is the key to novels. Corrin starts as being brash and aloof, but slowly becomes a team player and a full member of the squadron. He also has other growth areas, the main one of which is his learning of his Jedi heritage. Some readers were disappointed when they found out late in the series that Corrin was heir to the Jedi tradition. They liked him being just one of the guys, like Wedge, and asked me why I'd made him a Jedi. My reply was simple. Can it be Star Wars without a Jedi? I didn't think so, and in a later program I might be able to discuss how I developed him as a Jedi and the reasons for that. Diversity made two more demands on me. First off, when it came to my choice of villains, I wanted to use a woman and have her have been the Director of Intelligence for the Empire. Espionage is a subject that interests me a lot, and the old KGB had a number of nasty characters. People like Felix Drzinski and the East Germany's Marcus Wolf provide excellent examples of people who do not hesitate to do what needs to be done to protect their nation. Yuzani Icehard was such a person, and this led her to create the Kratos virus. Many of my novels have a sharp political element, and the New Republic was in a curious position at the time of my novels, which are set about two years before the Thrawn novels by Timothy Zahn. The Empire was clearly xenophobic, and the Rebellion used humans and aliens. This had to have been an uneasy alliance, and Icehard sought to exploit divisions within it. She created a savage virus, based loosely on my reading about the Ebola virus, that attacked non-humans and required a lot of Bacta to cure it. 
the New Republic just couldn't afford to purchase enough Bacta to halt the virus. But non-humans could easily be talked into believing that humans leading the Republic just didn't want to spend that money, creating suspicion and fracturing the alliance. Up to this point, the novels had not dealt much with politics, though some authors had begun to create a series of superweapons for our heroes to destroy. I wanted to do a different sort of threat, not something that could blow a planet up, since basically that's messy, but something that would kill off undesirables, destroy the rebellion, and let the Imperial forces reestablish control in the galaxy far, far away. The Kratos virus was it. Several points should be apparent by now, and they're critical in designing the first novel and indeed the series. First and foremost, I was really designing a series. I had four novels over which to develop characters, relationships, and situations which would allow for exciting adventures. Because this was Star Wars, I had to hit all the hallmarks of the movies. I needed humor, suspense, drama, action, sorrow, scary bits, and a sense of a universe that's lived in, not new, out of the box. Second, the planning was based around aspects of characters. The first novel is the rookie pilot's coming of age and becoming a cohesive fighting unit. After the first book, they would be prepared to take on some serious missions, including the conquest of Coruscant. That, thanks to Tim's novels, would be a very tough nut to crack. In fact, when I said that to Tim, he just smiled in that way he does. Third, research is critical. I'd always thought I was a Star Wars fan, but I was a piker. By the time I finished writing Star Wars novels, I had over six feet of source material. I had to know all of the source books, all the comics, all the other novels, as well as the movies and the radio plays. I made use of all of it, picking out details which shaped characters and conflicts. I was able to use the details to make sure the novels actually lived in the Star Wars universe. What will follow is an in-depth breakdown of the novel Rogue Squadron. I'll hit it in roughly 15 chapter chunks, so that's three more shows and probably add another show on after that. I'll cover why and how certain things happened in the novel, what I hoped would be reader reaction, and even discuss some of the more difficult aspects of fan reactions. But that's all upcoming over the next several shows. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. Thank you very much for listening. By now, all of you know that this podcast is an audio adjunct to The Secrets, my writing newsletter, which is available by subscription over the net. Subscribers pay a dollar an issue for advice and discussions about everything from character creation and world building to the effects of technology on publishing. Is it worth a dollar an issue to make your writing the best it could be? Issue 77 just came out with an article covering how you expand a short story into a novel, especially when it's taken on a life of its own. Don't forget to visit www.stormwolf.com to get your sample issue of The Secrets. My latest book, Masters of War, came out in April, in case you missed it. It's a Battletech novel. My next book, The New World, will be out in August, and that'll finish off the Age of Discovery trilogy. I wanted to alert you to an anthology called Armies of the Fantastic, which was edited by John Marcos and John Helfers. It just came out. I've got the last story in it, and the story's called Wildest Dreams. I've read parts of that story at a variety of conventions, and I think it's probably one of the best short stories I've ever written. The anthology deals with the elements of the fantastic in warfare. It's full of great stories, and I really hope you'll look for it, and I really hope you'll enjoy my story. Another thing I am very excited about is the Fortress Draconis podcast. I'm reading the novel Fortress Draconis chapter by chapter and releasing one a week. 
I'm having great fun reading it. And the preliminary reports are that just after three chapters, folks are hooked. I invite you to come over to www.stormwolf.com to check it out. Or you can subscribe through iTunes. The podcast is free, but if you want to go out and buy the novel or even the prequel to it, which is called The Dark Glory War, and support the effort, I would be very appreciative. One more quick point about my website. If you haven't seen it in the past week and a half, it's been totally redesigned. Cassie Claiborne did a brilliant job with it. Cassie is not only my friend, but she runs catalley.com. That's cat with a K. It's a hosting company. It's the hosting company that I use for my website and for all of my podcasts. If you're looking to put together a website, especially if you're a podcaster, go to catalley.com and take a look at her deals. Uh, You will not beat the service. You will not beat the offering there. So definitely check out catalley.com. This podcast is copyright 2007 by Michael A. Stackpole. Again, thanks for listening. I'll be back in a fortnight or so with more about working with words. Until then, good luck with your writing.